You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show. Today, I've got a very special guest in David Finkel. David is one of the nation's best business consultants. He's helped over 100,000 of his clients buy, build, and sell billions of dollars worth of business assets. He was an ex-Olympic level athlete turned business multimillionaire, and he truly is an American success story. He's the co-author of a book called Scale, Seven uh, Seven Proven Principles to Grow Your Business and Get Your Life Back. He also wrote another book called Build a Business, Not a Job. He does an incredible job of uh, articulating the different levels that businesses go through from startup all the way to uh, an exit if if the business owner wanted to sell. Um, And it really helps business owners free themselves up from their business because so many business owners get into business to live a life of freedom and abundance and yet all too often they get uh, enslaved into the business and uh, essentially the business owns them. So David helps them grow through that phase and into uh, full financial freedom and uh, he's been listed in the Wall Street Journal, Business Week. Um, he's a best-selling author of over 11 business and financial books. He truly is uh, an incredible mind, and I'm very grateful to have him on the show today. So without further ado, here I am with David Finkel. All right, I am sitting here with David Finkel. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate you uh, carving out some time. Absolutely, Peter. Um, David, you and I met, gosh, I... I hate to say, maybe even a decade ago at this point. <laughs> yes, you're you're getting old. Me, no, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you did that, but um, uh, so you were I, when we met up. I was in real estate. I was doing a lot of uh, real estate investing, and you were training people on. I think at the time you were teaching lease options, right? That was kind of your 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 thing, um, which blew me away. And frankly, you know, we went into the. Uh, my then wife at the time and I came to the program and the way that you taught it, I thought was so different than everybody else. Cause you weren't just, uh, I mean, first and foremost, I think you have a really brilliant mind in how you lay out the, uh, the roadmap from zero to hero, if you will. But you also like, I remember at one point you were telling us when we were talking to sellers, like how to raise your eyebrows and how to, in, you know, put inflection in your voice. I'm like, man, th- there is not a detail that this guy has not <laughs> covered. So I appreciate that, Mike, because my head is all over the place. The clarity that you give is, is really great. So um, anyway, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast was because you're now into, well, why don't you tell the listeners what you're into now and what your focus is and how you can help Absolutely, Peter. I hate to break it to you. So that would have been, I sold that real estate training company. We used to work with a couple thousand investors a year. I sold that about 16 or 17 years ago. <laughs> Two decades ago. As, uh, we just had my 30th high school reunion and I, I didn't go, but I thought I can't be a person who has a 30th reunion. I can't be that old, oh, almost during 50. But uh so the things that I love in life, I love building companies, and I've always enjoyed that. And I have loved teaching, and I've always found that personality style was the person that got frustrated when people would tell me what to do, but leave it to me to figure out how to do the what to do. And so I think I've always prided myself whenever I started teaching on a subject that I was always going to give people not just the what to do, but I was going to give them the how to do that what. And nowadays, for over a decade, we've been focusing on you know, how do you teach a, a business owner to build a business versus just owning a job? How do you build a company that's independent of the owner? And that's what we've been doing now with Maui Mastermind for 
a little bit over 12 years now. Well, that that fits perfectly because I started this whole podcast interviewing Simon Sinek. He's the start with why guy. I sure. just interviewed Steve Ulsher. He wrote the book, What is Your What? So now we're hitting the uh, the David Finkel how. how. Yeah. How, how do we actually get all this done? We got to get from point A to point B. So your level three business uh, model is super effective and clear and simple. So explain to the listener what the level three business is and, and how, you know the line between each level. Sure. So if you think of a business, there are three levels. First level, level one is a startup. You're scrambling to get those early customers. You're just trying to launch. A level two business is a business that works, but it works because you, the owner, is there making it work every day. You're personally producing, you're managing, you're making key decisions. At a certain point, a business can get what we call level three, an owner-independent business, where you've got a leadership team, you've got really robust systems and internal controls and a culture that gets the work of the business done independent of that owner. Sure, the owner still might be there working away, but their work is now optional. They're not a requirement from that. And that's a big deal because that means it's now going to be a strong business. And you know, most small business owners who build, they, they end up going to what we call a middle stage level two company. It works, but it works because they're there. And for the first five or 10 years, that's fine. But there's a point in time where they're just burned out and, and, and they're no longer enjoying it. So how do you move past that to build an owner independent company? That's a level three business. Right. I mean, most business owners that I know got into business because they sought out freedom or they sought out, um, you know, this to, to reap the rewards of success that a business throws off, but then not having the time to enjoy it is is sort of a moot point. So how does, uh, I'm going to presume that a lot of my audience is maybe at that more level one, early stage level two type business, but just out of curiosity, how does somebody go from that level two where they are, you know, they're often accused of micromanaging, they're often accused of, you know, they are the business. It's, it's like an inverted pyramid where they're at the bottom and if they were to, you know, God forbid, get hit by a bus, the business is going to really struggle. How do they get out of that and into a place where you have a level three business? Because I find that the psychology of the business owner is the hardest thing to crack. In your experience, how have you achieved that? You know, and, and you said it right there, the psychology of it, because the mechanics are one thing and we can show pretty much anybody the mechanics, but the mindset piece is huge. And, and so I'll just share a quick story here. So how do we come up with this? I'll tell you, it was uh, would have been 1999, take us back a little bit. And I was sitting in a hot tub of a house that I had bought. Uh, first time in over a year I'd ever been in this hot tub, which was one of the reasons I bought this house. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was on the road two and a half weeks out of every month. I was depressed. I was thinking, all I do is work. I'm 29 years old, or at the time, actually, I was 28. Uh, all I do is work. Yes, I might be making more money than I ever thought I would, more than my parents did. But I was asking that question, is this, is this all there is? I, I kept saying to myself, I, I started the company because I wanted to have freedom, but this does not feel like freedom. Right. It feels like I'm owned by this business. And soon thereafter, my business partner at the time, Peter, a very bright man, good friend of mine, at the time we, we had these yellow sheets of paper and they're like poster paper. And we wrote down a poster of this business for sale. We said, let's build this business so that we could sell it. And then every year we get to decide if we want to buy it ourselves, if we still love what we're doing enough that we want to keep it. And, and when we changed that frame, hmm. Peter, one hmm. of the things that we looked at was like, for example, um, who should we be working with and who should we say no that they need to be working with other staff members or we shouldn't be supporting it all? I mean, for example, I mean, we still use the one of our marketing mechanisms is we have a, a great free book. 
well, we did this back then for that other company. This is back when we used to coach just on the niche of real estate. And we would have people who would, would want free support for a free book they got. And we used to do that. It was insane. Hmm. You know, someone spent zero money and we gave them something, a, you know, a 200 page, 300 page book. They got good value from it, but then they want to ask follow on questions. And what we realized was we can start making decisions in the business rationally about who and how we want to go about this. And so jumping forward, how would someone go from an early stage level two company or a middle stage level two company to level three? The first and foremost thing is that you have to turn that switch in your brain. It literally is a light switch that we work with somebody. And what it is, it's to recognize that I'm going to build a business, my goal, not my hidden private in my deepest secret uh, mind, but, but I'm going to actually share it with my team, whether my team is just me and one halftime person or my team is 74 people who work for me. I'm going to make it a stated goal of this company that we're going to build this company to be independent of any one person. And then everyone always says, well, what will they think? <laughs> and the reality is it gives all the people who work for you security because if you get hurt, they lose their job right now. Mm -hmm. their, their family is impacted. It gives them the ability to grow. It gives them the ability to, to actually earn and, and, and generate more value and earn more. And finally, and this is a big one, they feel part of something. I watch business owners, and we, most business owners are like on this model of like a puppet master. They want all the strings to lead back to what they're holding in their hand. And we call that control-itis. The hardest thing to get someone to do is to let go of that, that uh, desire for control. The business is not better for the control. The business is actually weaker and more, more fragile, mm -hmm. um, more brittle. It can't suffer a shock and, and recover nearly as well. And so when someone churns that and makes that as a stated goal of their company to build an owner-independent business, now we can start making small, simple steps quarter by quarter, things like I'm going to hand off not just a, a task, but Peter, I might say to somebody, hey, I want you to own this responsibility from here forward. What system would we need to make that easier for you? What internal control would let you self-manage the behavior and let me know that it was handled the right way? And over time, when you have the accumulation of these systems and controls that you've handed off to people, you start building a culture where in your company, the goal is and the way that you do business is that you build something that's independent of any one person. We call that strategic depth. You build strategic depth in there. Mm -hmm. And that's how you do it. It's a slow process. But over three, four, five, six years, you can do it. I think with the, the the psychology requirement of letting go and that being such a difficult thing for a level two business owner to do, what's really helpful in, I think, what you provide, what you offer is you've got uh, a, a body of work where people have already done that. And so to see people ahead of you, because I think that's a big fear of business owners is the let, if I let go, this is my baby, like how do I... In a lot of respects, it's like raising a child, right? And and getting yeah. to that point where you got to let the child go and make their own mistakes. And um, I, I think that typical business uh, level two business owner sees mistakes being made and they want to rush in and solve it, as opposed to how do I how do I cultivate a a culture of empowerment with my people, but also the the processes and procedures to where problems can get resolved without me having to micromanage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, taking that leap is such a difficult one. But again, I think the fact that you have people that are, have already done that um, demystifies it a little bit. And, and it allows people to step into that without with with feeling a little bit more security, I think. 
Absolutely. I'll share two quick stories on that. So one story I'll share where, where this is the same for me, the same, the, the same idea of eating our own cooking. So about 10 years ago, one of my mentors, she had built a hundred plus million dollar company and, and she was fantastic. And so she challenged me. She said, David, when people bring you problems, you like to solve them because it makes you feel smart. It makes you feel needed. It makes you feel important. She, she said, David, write down on an index card. And she had me write a statement, and I'll share the statement in a moment. And I started practicing this little index card for about the next 24 months before it finally became automatic. And it changed my own company here. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a difference from us being a middle stage level two business immediately once I got it into an advanced stage level two business toward level three. And the, the index card just simply said, I don't know. What do you think we should do here? <laughs> I mean, it was so easy. But when she said it, it just like a light bulb went off because people would bring me a challenge. And of course, I want to solve it. Right. And so the next time they bring a challenge, I say, I don't know here, you know, uh, Teresa, what, what do you think we should do here? And she says, well, I think we should do this. Great. Do it. And, you know, nine times out of 10, their answers are, 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 are spot on or fairly reasonable one out of 10, they're in left field. And I have to coach them and say, well, why do you think that? What else haven't you considered? And what do you mean, David? I could do less work and my business is better for it by letting someone else handle it? Yes. None of us like other people giving us answers. We would much prefer somebody letting us have some creativity and some ownership with that. Well, absolutely. I mean, think of the productivity that your team is going to have if they feel empowered to solve problems. Instead yeah. of a dictator constantly telling them what to do. Um, second, second quick story on this yes. one here. So it happened literally today, so I have to share it. So <laughs> we forget as business owners that, that we just go on autopilot. We just do, all of us do, myself included. So I, I don't coach many of our clients anymore. Generally speaking, our, our, our staff of coaches are phenomenal. Many of them have had business successes much greater than mine. I keep a small stable that I still coach. And I was coaching this one guy. And uh, I guess what had happened is a customer called him up. He, he runs a company that's outdoor advertising. They're responsible for about 10,000 outdoor signs for developers and builders around the U.S. And one of his team members made, it, made a mistake. And they ended up putting up a sign that said, uh, you know, call, this is for this, this subdivision. But the subdivision was supposed to say coming soon. And it was a, a metal plate that was supposed to be screwed over it. And his, his, his customer was pissed off. And so I'm talking to him and he's, David, I'm in the airport. I'm flying over to the city to go fix it. And I just, I asked him, I said, well, hang on a second here. Seven months ago, you put this particular guy in charge of your production side. Why isn't he on that plane with you? And the moment I said it, he got it because a customer called. It was his biggest customer responsible for hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue every year. And uh, his first reaction was, I'll jump in and just handle it. Take right over. Mm-hmm. And what he recognized was his default step in, take over, solve was not the right thing for the business. Mm-hmm. He should have turned it directly over to his production manager. And if his production manager had to get on that plane last minute and get away from his family, you better believe the production manager would have found a better way to solve that for the next time. That's such a good point. Like let people learn on the job. There's a, I think there's a, in my coaching work that I've worked with individuals on, um, and specifically with men, it, there is a subtle desire for deep validation. 
Like I want to be sure. validated by my spouse, by my peers, by society, by my children. And I think that desire to be validated or approved or loved is what's driving a lot of this. Oh, I have the answer. I have the answer. Let, let me tell you, look at how smart I am. I've, I've done a lot of work on this. Let me, let me. And, and so be like bringing that up to the surface and helping uh, people, just people in general, but business owners in specific to this conversation, illuminate that desire to realize, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get people to say, oh, I, you're so smart. Oh, you have all the answers. Um, I worked with my father right out of the gate uh, when I was younger, and I was constantly going with him with ideas and all this stuff. And it didn't. It all of a sudden the light bulb went off, like you say, and I realized uh, all I'm doing is trying to get his approval, get his like, sure. oh, you're amazing. And I think to some degree <laughs> he was doing it back to me, and so we were fighting over. It, it was ridiculous, and so. It, once I realized that I kind of let go of that and then of course, you know, things can kind of unfold more organically and smoothly. Uh, but I just wanted to bring that up because I do think that that's a big part of that desire to control, desire yeah. to have all the answers, et cetera. And, and whether it be men or women, I think all of us that become entrepreneurs, we, we really dread feeling helpless. Like we're in a situation where we don't have power to do something. And, and just, I'll, I'll give a different analogy here, even on the parenting side. I mean, I've got young kids. My my kids are 10, 10, and 6. My 6-year-old, he is a pain in the rear to get dressed. I live in a small town, Jackson, Wyoming, and it's cold in the winter. Putting on his winter stuff is a pain. It is almost always faster just to put on his ski pants, put on his boots, shove his arms into the jacket, get the hat on his head, throw the gloves on. But every time I do that, he's not learning with that. And what I've learned to do for me if I can feel that validation when he's able to go ahead and, and dress himself, so the same thing in my business, when I watch Teresa or Larry or Kim or Steve or one of the other people in my company handle something that in the past they would have come to me for, I've learned that that is now a way that I can use that as a cue, an anchor to trigger some validation for me. But I, I agree with you. I think mm. men especially, but women as well, we want that sense of respect. And, and to be affirmed for being uh, competent and able. And it's, it's poison for your business, unfortunately. It's poison. Um, since you just mentioned that, I, I'm, it triggered my mind out of curiosity. Are there, are there a difference in your mind in uh, business owners that are owned by women versus men? Is there a different path or a different technique yeah. or whatever that, that Yeah, so helpful? I mean, we look at this, right? I mean, roughly half and half our clients, our coaching clients for companies are are, are, are women business owners, half are men business owners, I mean, within a few percent of each other. And I'll tell you that some of the strengths that I'll see, and this is a generalization, so it's not accurate in every case, but across the whole, I think it is accurate that, that the women business owners we work with tend to be much better about drawing other people in to actually give and contribute ideas. They're better about that. Where they struggle, again, sweeping generalization, sure. absolutely not accurate in the specifics, <laughs> but on the whole it is, they try to take on too much. Um, they, they end up you know, stepping in there and saving the day in a way that they'll, they end up playing, I call it the gap catcher role, where everything that doesn't have a neat place, they collect all these things and they just take care of it. Oh, I'll handle it. I'll handle that. And before they know it, they're working 80, 90 work, work hours every week. The men are a little bit different. We tend to be a little bit more um, concerned with how we're perceived around that. And so we'll grab onto control a little bit more forcefully. And we tend to... Most of the, most entrepreneurs are fairly articulate, so it's not that we steamroll somebody, but we tend to to dominate sometimes by convincing everybody of our point of view, 
And what we don't realize is that most of the people we convince don't really agree. They just don't want to fight. And we're the boss. We're the one signing the paycheck. And so they acquiesce. And what we lose is we lose their, we get their hands, but we lose their heart and their brain. Mm. We don't get the best of them. Mm. And that's a generalization that I think is accurate in the whole, not necessarily in the particular. Is there something that men do that they tend to do naturally more effectively? Or, you know, what, I mean, are, what are good, what are men good at in business? <laughs> yeah, great question. I, I don't necessarily think men have an advantage as an entrepreneur other than society gives them a little bit more credit because yeah. we, we're, we're a man, and especially if we happen to be white and tall, we, we tend to get credit that we don't really have earned. But other than that, I think actually of our clients, more of our women clients are better business owners by far than our, our male clients generally as a sweeping overall um, we get a little bit of extra credit. And, I, and as a tall white man, I get a little bit of extra credit just for showing up, which is unfair, but it is what it is in today's world at the moment. Well, I think you're speaking to on the, with the female leadership side of things in the, in the head and the heart. I think that there's that inclusiveness that I think a lot of, again, stereotypically women bring to the table, sort of they're wired for that community, um, is a real lesson I think men can take on and realize how much that is will help them achieve their objectives. Yeah. Um, and because that to me speaks to the culture and the, and the, there's plenty of studies that show a better culture equals a more productive team, a more profitable business, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's certainly something there to, to take into heart. Um, I wanted to just clarify because we kind of went over very quickly. We we talked about level one being startup phase. We talked about level three really being okay. The business owner can step away and there's, processes and systems to run the business. But let's dive in a little bit closer into that level two. You talked about an early, mid, and late stage level two. Can you describe what those mean? Sure. So an early stage level two business is scrambling. It's a business that's scrambling for enough sales to reach the point of profitability. So whatever that break-even point looks like for them to actually be making money. A middle stage level two business, it's a business that works. It's a business that's profitable. In many cases, it's been profitable for a few years to to 10, 20, 30 years. But the distinction is the business revolves around the owner, where the owner's at the center and the business just revolves around that. You know, the owner says things like, you know, why don't you go find this information, bring it back to me, I'll make the decision. They say, you know, check back with me beforehand, I'll make the final call. Um, they, they have people who work for them often, but they're there to leverage, they're there to, to help but ultimately comes back to the owner who tends to be the biggest producer for the business. Uh, they do most of the selling. They do most of the leadership. They do most or all the, the actual decisions around uh, financial and or um, operational production systems for how they produce their product or service. At an advanced stage level two, they've made one or two key hires of people who own functional pillars of the company. You think about it. Every business has five pillars, right? You have sales marketing, I could break that into two depending on the company, but I've got to find prospects and I've got to close business. Every business has operations. I've got to produce my product or service and take care of the, uh, the admin. Every business has leadership, right? I've got to make decisions on what products are we going to do? Um, who are we going to hire? What markets will we stay in of? What markets will we leave and stay out of? Every business has a, an HR pillar, the team, the hiring, the firing, the, the ongoing training and the other legal compliance. And every business has a fifth pillar, which, of course, is the financial side. I've got to account for the money. I've got accounts payable. I've got accounts receivable. I've got to make decisions about forecasting for what's going on for cash flow. 
Those are examples. Every company has it. So an advanced stage level two business says, hey, there's at least one or two of these pillars that are owned by somebody else. So you might have John who functionally owns your sales marketing pillar. You might have Susan who owns your operations pillar. The moment you have more than just the owner, you start to build this leadership team, you're starting to enter the water of an advanced stage level two business. And here, you probably have some good systems in place, but you're refining, you're training people on them, and you're trying to build this, this culture where, where it becomes the norm that in your business, people create, refine, centrally store systems that people use. Mm-hmm. And those would be the three levels. And I would tell us that we might do well to even look at that that middle stage level two in a little more depth. I've, I've got a, some ideas if it would maybe help your your listeners to know how can they make that next step. Sure, let's get into that. What's your thought on that? So, assuming that you're willing to make a stated goal, the the first thing I'd say is you don't want to do this all in one fell swoop. I I see this, Peter. Like you know, for example, let's say I have a, a business, and so maybe I have a, a fitness training company. And uh, I've got four fitness trainers who work underneath me, and I've got a, a back office person, and I've got a part-time bookkeeper. And I think, oh, man, David, what you said about systems is great. I'm going to go away for two weeks. I'm going to create all the formal systems for our entire company. And so I go away like I'm, I don't know, thinking I'm Moses on high. I go up to the town of, top of Mount Sinai. I come back with these stone tablets like... Shaha! Like this, like like I'm like like the king with the, here's the tablets from the Word of God, and it's like no one even follows it. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Systems that are done all in one fell swoop from on high don't work. They've got to be bottom up. They've got to be the person who's doing the work has a voice in it. They've got to be things that are done along the way, bit by bit, because otherwise, what you have is a a policies and procedures manual, and, and no one. It's a waste of energy. No one's ever going to look at it. So I look at, at systematization as a living, breathing discipline. And so I, I'll, I'll, I'll pick one area of the company first. You know, I would say my HR side. And I'll say, okay, under HR, I'm going to go ahead and break that down and think well, I've got hiring, I've got onboarding, I've got uh, compliance, you know, HR compliance and so forth. And I've got uh, ongoing training and I've got one more subcomponent, which is should I ever have to fire somebody? How do I exit somebody? Great. What systems do I already have? You know, I might have on my computer seven systems that I've already used, a, a checklist here, a process there, a spreadsheet there. Um, Jody might have two documents on hers, and Frank might have come up with this really cool handwritten worksheet. I want to centralize them to one place, and, and I don't mean on one server, but uh, whether I'm using a, you know, uh, Google Drive or Dropbox.com or uh, my Office 365 can have shared space there for Microsoft or we use a company called Ignite. It's the same type of thing, but a, 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 a shared uh, file structure that you can use that's hosted you know, on, on, you know, on the cloud. And uh, I, I, I put those systems in and I ask myself, what one system do I wish I would have had right now? The one system that costs me the most for not having or would mean the most to us if we were to have in this area. You know, maybe you have a lot of turnover, like you hire people, but they quit very quickly. Great. If that were the case, if, if I were coaching that person, I'd say maybe for you it's the onboarding system. You're you're spending 50 to 100 hours of your best time to find someone who's good, but then you're just throwing them at the place with no real coordinated onboard. Let's make that a little bit more special, and I can systematize that part out. That might take me a whole quarter or even two quarters to get that working well. And then I ask the same question again. Once I start doing this, Peter, I can now start getting some key people in the company 
to each do the same thing in their respective areas. And this is how at first it happens really slowly, but 12 months later, you might have six or seven people in the company who are doing the systematization. At the same time, they're training their individual staff on how to use these things. They're, they're getting feedback from these people so they feel like they have a sense in cooking the meal. And before you know it, systems become a regular way that you do your company. And that's one of the most important parts about going from middle stage to advanced stage. That's one of the important parts. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> how, one of the, one of the, pieces of advice I've gotten over the last year uh, in that regard was that systemization is great, but getting it to the point where you over-systematize, where everything becomes, can be problematic as well. How do you know how far to go and and when's too far as far as putting system around everything? Yeah. So uh, two quick comments on that. So first of all, system is not enough by itself, right? People have got to use the system. So you think about it, you have the, the process layer and you have the format layer. The process layer says, is the recipe accurate? If I follow this recipe, do I get the same result? But just because I have the recipe right doesn't mean people are going to actually use it. Like, I'll give an example. Um, you might have people who are experienced with how you do a certain process. And you have the system written out in 16 pages in exhaustive detail, accurate screenshots. But the person who's actually doing the work they're never gonna look at a 16-page document. They might need the one-page checklist with six items on it to get the result. So I have to think about how do I wanna format the system to get the result that I want? And most people who think about systematizing everything, the way they do that is they rush through this process and they end up with these long written documents for everything. And I'll tell you two things. Number one, the moment you write your system down, slowly over time, it's becoming out of date. Sometimes, you know, even in a couple of months, it's no longer accurate or valid. Mm. And so what you want is that you don't want the system. You want the discipline and the culture of consistently updating systems as you go, refining and using systems and and even getting rid of or pruning systems that you don't need. You need other people's involvement with that Mm. so that when a software changes, someone's going to update that system with that. So that when the checklist, when something changes because you're now using a different vendor, somebody updates that. But there's a cost, and this was my second point. It's like a scale. Structure gives you something. Structure gives you consistency. It gives you scalability. It lowers the cost of having somebody new come in and learn. But structure also costs you something, right? It's expensive to create. It's expensive to maintain. And some people who are really good at what they do find it deadening to have to follow too literally. So there's these scales and you have to ask yourself, I mean, I think it makes sense to, to, to document and, and process through how I'm going to go ahead and do my main service offering, mm-hmm. you know, but, but how I schedule an appointment, yes, I need to know how to use the software, but do you really need to tell me micromanage it that, that when you're done, this is the exact company prescribed email that you follow up with, you know, give me an example perhaps if I need it, but give me a little bit of creativity around there too. People can find it deadening if I try to document everything. What they call that is, that's called corporate America. (laughs) And and, and the people who want that, that's where they end up going anyways. But the rest of us, you know, that's not going to make the business better. We're not looking to build our company as as a franchisor that makes everything detailed from, oh, your name badge must be six inches up and to the left. Where you're able to give people some autonomy Give them the autonomy. Now, if it really mattered, like if I were running a restaurant 
and I really wanted to have some standardization around the presentation of how a server would go out there on the floor, no problem with that. But if I'm behind the scenes and there's no reason logically or business-wise why I have to dress a certain way, give me some flexibility, you know? I mean, I, some of my best people that I've ever had are people that might have tattoos in strange places or whatever, but if their role doesn't put them in front of a client, what does it matter? Yeah. You know, let, let them enjoy every one of the rings, every one, every one of the places on their body. Wonderful. <laughs> they're bright. They're, they're, they're good people. They do great work. What do I care? Mm -hmm. And so systematization can be taken too far for sure. Got it. For sure. So, um, let's, let's dial back a little bit to that level one business. So the person who's listening to this right now, who maybe, uh, is a startup business, they have an idea, maybe it's even a, a side hustle that they're, you know, trying to, uh, hire themselves away from their current job into their own business. What are some piece of advice that you can give there? Or let me actually ask you this. What are some of the common mistakes that somebody makes when they first just get started with a business idea? Great. So in a second, I'll share what I consider the three most important words for a level one person, and I'll do that in a second, but let me frame it as the mistake that I see. A level one business, they scramble and, and they're, 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 they're just trying to survive. So what they do is they hustle. And when they hustle, they go after a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit over here, and they think that the more irons they have in the fire, the more likely they are to make things work. And what happens is they, they don't know this one, and here's the three word phrase, they don't know this which is less is more mm. for you to, to get from level one to level two. I've got to start simplifying the business because it's very expensive from an attentions perspective to go try to go ahead and do seven hustles at once. If I can find a way to narrow that to two or even better to one, it becomes easier to sell that hustle to whatever that is. You know, for example, let's go back to our fitness advisor. If I'm specializing in working with people who are, for example, uh, like my dad, who's now in his late 70s, you know, he works with a personal trainer every three weeks, a guy's named Tony. If I were Tony, I wouldn't want to be working just with people on personal training that were older and younger. And, oh, on the weekends, I go do triathlon training over here. And I, I want to become known in a smaller niche and really dominate a niche for that part. It becomes easier to create better sales material. It becomes easier to create a reputation. It becomes easier when I go to fulfill on that that I have, I can, because I'm focused, I can do less of that. So I would ask myself, what is the highest profit margin, most uh, successful part of the company? You know, maybe I discover for me that, yes, I can go scramble over here and do the training for people who are training for, for triathlons. But I mean, if it were me, I'm looking at like a personal training business, gosh, you know, working with people who are in their 60s, 70s and 80s and specializing in that, in that climate, you know, number one, they have money. Number two, no one really specializes in them. Having talked with, because now many of my friends are entering that world, so many of them say that these people take them through training exercises, they're sore the next day and they get injured. They never realize that their bones are literally you know, more fragile. They train me like I was back in my 20s. If I could come at that approach, I could create a business model around that that would be much higher value but take less time and attention for me to do that. I'd make more money and less time. Now I can take that excess and invest in the next person that I can hire in to help me, or I can invest in an outsourced vendor to help me take over a, a functional responsibility to give me more time to continue to grow. So going back to that level one person, you're trying to do all these different things, and you've got to find a way to cut out some of them so you can focus in on a fewer things that are better, and less is more. 
more is not better. Better is better. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, that's such a that's such a challenging thing because if we go back to that fitness example, you have somebody that I'm sure could probably meet the needs of or, or they have eighty percent of the knowledge of what make what it takes to make somebody fit, but that other I'm just gonna say maybe 10 to 20% that really is specific to that particular niche, say elderly people or, you know, first time triathletes or somebody that's trying to get that little bit of an edge. They're already, you know, very, by many standards, you know, excelling at it, but they're wanting to get that little bit of an edge. All of those different subset niches have those specific, um, needs that really change the, the nature of, how you would deliver that service. So it's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to go, especially when they're just starting out because they're just, in their mind, they're just thinking, I got to survive. So right. if, if I'm trying to focus on elderly people who are, who are wanting to be more athletic or whatever, more fit, but all of a sudden this 30-year-old comes along and is willing to hire me, of course I'm going to take him because I need to make, I got to put food on the table, right? So how do you, what's your recommendation for that person who is, I mean, I understand what you're saying intellectually, but I also know in the trenches, they're really struggling with that. So let's get to that mechanics, right? So I've said the what to do. Let's talk about the how to do that what. So that person who's scrambling and saying, look, my family's got to eat. This 30-year-old comes to me. I'm going to train him or her about that. Wonderful. But you have choices about where you advertise. So I'll give an example. So, you know, I work with a, we work with a lot of medical practices in our coaching practice. And so I'll talk with someone. I'll say, okay. You've just told me that this particular type of patient is, generally speaking, you, you do procedures that are higher billing reimbursement rates for you. They're much more profitable. Got it. I'm not saying you should turn away everybody else, but if you fill up every minute of your day with everyone else in a scattering of ways, that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. So can I give myself a small block that I can use to go after the kind I want? So go back to your trainer. Who do I advertise for? Can I put together my marketing materials that are specific for this higher niche that that I've determined fits for me? Yes, in the early stages, if someone else comes, I'll take them. But over time, I'll start to wean myself off of that. And I'm not going to actively solicit to get every type of client. I'm going to put my best marketing attention and effort to in one or two niches to get those ones. And yes, I'll still take the other ones because I need to. But I'm starting to progressively work myself so that more and more of my time and my day get filled by the niche that I'm best at. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important part. I agree. It's it's not an on-off switch there. It's more of a of a dimmer that you can kind of twist and dial as opposed to a you know an on-off binary. And I think that's an important point you make. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. That makes sense. Where did you just to um, come at this from a little bit of a different angle? Where did you when did you find out that you really loved business? Just in your own personal journey. Yeah. So I, I didn't know that I wanted to be in business at all. I grew up, I, I watched my, my dad was a doctor who, who himself never saw himself in business. I mean, I watched what he did. Where did he you grow up again? In California, in a okay. place called Thousand Oaks, California. Okay. And Westlake Village. And it's a hour north of LA. And so for me, I watched my dad. My dad was you know uncomfortable with money for over 20 years. He didn't go to the bank to deposit or take out money. He would always have his, his office manager go. He just was so uncomfortable talking about money. It was just, it, today looking back, I look at that and I'm in awe. I mean, how could you have run a, a medical practice that way? But he managed to with two partners. Wow. Um, my grandfather was a business person, so he had a pharmacy and he built the pharmacy, sold it, bought another one, built it, sold it. 
and did that three times before he finally retired. But I didn't see any of that. For me, I, I kind of fell into it. I, I found the things that I was interested in were sports. After I got injured, I was training to play in the Olympics, uh, uh, field hockey on the U.S. men's national team. I played for about six, seven years on the national team. But I got injured, so that didn't work out. I, I, I started thinking about what were the things that I loved to do, and I just kind of fell into it. I, at first, my first business I started while I was still in college, I dropped out. I flopped. Ten months later, I blew through my life savings, and it was like <laughs> 3500 bucks at the time. I was horrible. I was a nutritional company, of all things. It, clearly, I was the wrong person for that. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I made all kinds of mistakes. Great learning experience at the time, quite painful, more embarrassing. I felt I felt really humiliated that I had a failed business. Like like I thought the world would even care. Um, no one cared. My family was gracious about it, even though they told me I was an idiot to drop out of college for it. Um, but it was on the second business that I did that I found that I really enjoyed it. I I love puzzles. And business is nothing more than one consecutive series of puzzles. I love that. Hmm. I love the strategic piece. I love the operational part. I found that it just fit for me. Um, and that was kind of my love. I, I didn't really have a background in it all. I studied philosophy in college, a completely worthless major if I look back <laughs> at it. But but it is what it is. And I, and I learned about business by doing it. And I discovered that I, I had some talent for it. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. What was your first <laughs> successful business? Uh, that real estate trading company, okay. we built it and, you know, probably with about seven, eight years in, we were making, I don't know, three, three plus million dollars a year of profit from this company. Myself and a partner owned it 50-50. And then I got an offer to sell my half of it and I took the offer and, you know, it was good timing. I mean, that was right before my wife had breast cancer and, mm. you know, I, I didn't want to think about business then. It was all about, about dealing with her and she's fine and, 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 and it's now been 15 years since that, that is that right? 15? probably 13 years since that, since she, you know, had that, that experience. But, but I was very much, uh, lucky that the timing for that sale was perfect. I could focus on family. That to me is one of the greatest gifts of owning your own business is to be able to have, be able to make decisions like that. Cause so many people deal with that and they don't have the, the luxury or the capability of pushing the pause button when they need to. Sure. Um, so uh, do you still have real estate? Are you still in the real estate game? I do do real estate still, but I, I tell you, real estate's boring. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoy owning it, I suppose, for what it does. It's it's useful. I still have some office buildings and commercial spaces, and got rid of all. I mean, at one point, I had interest in several hundred single family or or small individual rentals, and I'm none of that anymore. I've got one rental um, that's a residential one. That's in you know, it's a, a a townhouse, and that's my only residential stuff. Still have some commercial and. Uh, just don't love it anymore. Yeah. Um, business is about a thousand times more interesting to me than, than real estate is. I bet. Well, you're in a perfect position now too because you get all these different types of business owners that come to you in different industries. And so you get to have all those different puzzles that you get to solve. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's great. Um, so you've written a, a book. For those that are interested in finding a little bit more about you, tell people where they can go and, and some of the other um, material that you have to offer them. Sure. I mean, the two easiest ways, they're both free, would be uh, we have a book called Build a Business, Not a Job. I wrote it with actually my business mentor I mentioned earlier, Stephanie. Stephanie is the former chairperson of the National Association of Manufacturers. You know, she sold her medical device manufacturing company a couple years ago for a huge amount of money. She just, she, 
she's someone I admire in so many ways. I mean, her and her husband, Jack, have raised their two children. They've, they've managed to keep a vibrant marriage going for over 50 years. I mean, they're just remarkable people. So the, the book's called Build a Business, Not a Job. You can get a free copy at our website, which is MauiMastermind.com, M-A-U-I, M-A-S-T-E-R-M-I-N-D.com. Um, you can also, if you want the hardcover version of it, you can buy it on Amazon or at your bookstore. The second tool I would say is when you're there at MauiMastermind.com, we have a toolkit. It's got about a dozen of our best short training videos, 10 to 30 minutes long, uh, PDF downloadable tools of some of the things that we teach business owners. And, and you can get a copy of either one of those right there. Those are probably the best first um, steps for someone to learn more about what we do. Killer. Um, the Maui Mastermind, explain to people why, what that is. Or how yeah, that originated. So, you know, a lot of people now have heard of what a mastermind group, but in case someone's never heard of that, it came out of a concept, came out of a book, boy, back in the 1920s, a guy by the name of Napoleon Hill wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich. And so this essentially 100-year-old book talked in there about a group of people who would get together to, to go after a definite uh, chief aim together in a spirit of cooperation and harmony. And I love the idea. Mm -hmm. I read about that 25 years ago when I was still playing sports, and I love the idea. Um, and so we created this event out in Hawaii about 15 years ago. A matter of fact, I'm going to be leaving in two days to go out for our 15th annual Wealth Summit event uh, that we've done. Congratulations, man. That's phenomenal. Yeah, thank you. So we bring our very best of our best clients together. We'll have probably about 60 people plus the advisor team for a week out there. And just looking really for people who want to kick it into a huge upper gear, scaling your company, looking at your, how do you build your, your wealth independent of the business, but this is what we had started, and we originally called that event Maui Mastermind Wealth Summit. We did that back all the way in 2003, and we've been doing it since. Um, and then I liked the name Maui Mastermind, and we had some notoriety with it. After I sold my real estate training company um, in 2007, I started up kind of more of a mainline business teaching about building companies, and I decided to use the same branding. That's why the name is that way. You know, for me, Maui's always been a place of, uh, you know, a sense of freedom, for me, Maui's always been a place where, where really you can step away from your business and get new perspective. I mean, it's kind of ironic. A couple of the people attending that event are actually people who live, one of the guys, Graham, who's been coming out there for a decade now. He literally lives 10 minutes away from the resort. <laughs> he didn't get to travel to it, but my kids are so excited. Our clients are flying in all the way from the East Coast, central, central part of the United States. But uh, that's why we get the name Maui Mastermind. It's just basically this idea that reminds us of our roots that we're about how can we create a community of business owners that can collectively help each other build truly extraordinary businesses. Mm -hmm. and, and we can take from each other and we can give to each other. And both halves of that are really important. Well, the, the giving part of it, I remember when I asked you about this many years ago, I'm not even going to try to remember how many years ago because I'm sure it's a lot more than what I thought it was. Um, but I remember you telling some stories of the levels of bringing two people together seeing things that they didn't see and how that was able to a elevate their business to stratospheric levels. But then on top of that, and this is to me speaks to the culture of, of who you are and what you, what you've created is how is that going to contribute and pay forward to, you know, uh, uh, uh charity, uh, or a societal problem or whatever. Do you have any, um, quick examples of some of the cool things that have come out of that mastermind that, uh, you've been able to, you or, or your customers have been able to, to benefit. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, so one of the guys is coming back for a second year, his name's Ron. And Ron has built this manufacturing business in Florida. And it's a, a great business. It does uh, 
control system automa automation for other manufacturers. Basically, he makes devices that control plant processes that go on, and they do a great job at it. Anyway, so he picked up some ideas of the well. Somebody scaled this company, probably makes maybe, I don't know, half a million to a million dollars more today than he did last year. And uh, he made a $2 million pledge for a particular charity, for a wow. group that's working both with school children age people and also with prisoners. These are two populations that he really wanted to do something for. Mm -hmm. And he's funding some actual scientific research for different intervention programs that can be studied to see if they actually will work. And then he'll he'll feed more of this, 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 this uh, committed money once he finds programs that have been scientifically proven to actually help um, reintegrate prison populations and also to work with disadvantaged young kids, hmm. giving them some more choices. And I thought that was fantastic. And going back to it, because he got ideas, some from the event itself, some from the people in that room, he's making a lot more money. You know, he was already doing exceptionally well. He didn't need more for him. For him, that was now gave him a little bit more breathing space to say, you know what, I can look for ways that I can do some good with this outside of, you know, the people he employs and the companies that he helps. Because I'm a big believer. We don't need to just make money from our business so that we can go do donate the money. The businesses that we run are probably the greatest form of service we're ever going to have. Mm. Yet one of the greatest affirmations of how much abundance we have is by giving away some of the excess. And when I watched Ron make this $2 million pledge to charity, I just I was touched by that. He did it over a three-year period. He pledged that money a certain amount each year. And I respect that. I really do. Uh, you just said something there that was really deeply profound, uh, that the business itself can be the greatest, most um, sacred thing that you can you can do. Speaking of that, what, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> so, I mean, it's funny. I, I'm going to give credit to a book. So uh, I'm, my background is I'm Jewish. And one of my good friends is, is a very clear Christian and very devout evangelical Christian. And so he recommended me this book called um, God Wants You to Be Wealthy or... Uh, Thou shalt prosper, I think was what it was called. But it was the funny part was written by a rabbi. So my Christian friend told me about the <laughs> Jewish book, and I'm laughing. And, and in the book, the guy said something that really stayed with me. He said, you know, most of us think about our business as we make money so that then we can go take the money and do good things. His comment was, well, what's the good that the business is doing? And I, it changed changed my view on that. I used yeah. to think that I was going to, you know, my way of making good in the world was that I was going to donate in my lifetime at least $20 million personally and raise another $200 million for charity. That used to be my, my lifetime charity goals. And what I recognized, though, is that I'm going to have a much bigger impact on the world through the people that I can touch, whether it be through a book that I write or a web training that I do, a podcast like this, or clients that come in directly and indirectly by teaching a generation of business owners to really build companies that are truly special. Hmm. And so how can the work that we do create truly value there? And by the way, it's inspiring for your team members. You know, they're, they're not just there helping you as a company make money, but my team members recognize where they're, where they're changing business owners and all the employees and all the families of those employees were changing their lives by working with several hundred or several thousand business owners. Mm. I love that. Um, I think that's part of your secret sauce or your not secret sauce, special sauce, I should say that, um, that you have a focus on that because, uh, I've noticed that any event that I've been to that you've been associated with, it has, um, attracted that type of, uh, yeah. person. Um, I ask this question often to people. I'm curious what you would say to it. How do you want people to remember, not just you after you're long gone, but how do you want people to remember any interaction with you or your business? 
what are, what are, what are the three words that you'd want somebody to use to describe an interaction with Maui Mastermind, with the book, with you? Yeah. So I don't know if I can do it in three words, but I'll do it in just a, a statement. So I, I guess what I would say is I want someone to feel like they they really got the the how to do it. I want someone to recognize that they've got models of people who are at least trying to eat their own cooking. I'm not perfect at it. I screw up every day, but I, I'm at least trying to eat my own cooking within our company. And then the third component I want them to go away is to say, hey, these are people that do what they say they'll do. Yes, they held me accountable to do what I said I would do as a coach, but but they've really done their best to honor their word. Those are the, the three elements that I would hope someone would leave with. I love that. <clears throat> um, all right. Well, I know we're getting a little bit short on time, but um, David, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Always uh, a pleasure talking to you. It's it, it, I always feel <laughs> I don't, this sounds sort of funny, but I always feel very reassured when I talk to you. You have such a clear, <laughs> like, relax. This is how you do it. You've done it many times before. I was like, oh, okay. Doesn't my mind tends to uh, to overcomplicate and to to be very you know out on the edges and make it sure. bigger and all that. So it's really nice to come back to to home base, if you will, and and simplify and clarify things. So thank you for that. Um, again, it's MauiMastermind.com. Um, the book "Build Your Business, Not a Job" is is another one that uh, I highly recommend. It's a great book. Actually, one quick thing before I say goodbye. There was something in there that really shifted me personally, which was you started to ask, what were the conversations that you had with your parents around the dinner table or whatever when you were growing up as it pertains to wealth, as it pertains to rich people, as it pertains to money? And we started this conversation, a lot of the psychology, and to realize like what stories have we created about um, making money, about rich people, about wealthy people? And just really quick on that too, like – I realized that I had a different association to the word rich than I did with wealth because wealth to me was bigger than just money. It was quality of life. It was, you know, the the people in your life. So for anybody that's listening to think about what are the stories that you have around those things and uh, and then, of course, build a business, not your job. The book is is where you can go to kind of dive in deeper into that. But uh, anyway, again, thank you so much uh, for your time today, David. This is fantastic. Thank you, Peter. All right. Take care.